Hi there, everybody. Ed asked me to chime in and let you know about me. My name is Dan, and I am weird. But I don't see weird as a bad thing. Weird just means people marching to the beat of a different drum, not fitting into that hole that society wants to shove you into. On my show, The Power of Weird, I'm talking to people like me. The weirder, the better. So when you're done listening to this great episode of the Dead America Podcast, come on over to thepowerofweird.com and start the descent into your weirdom. And remember, be the weird you want to see in the world. I'll see you next time on The Power of Weird. Welcome to this week's episode of Dead America. I'm Ed Waters, your host, and this week we're going to dive into Sir Winston Leonard Spencer Churchill, or simply put, Winston Churchill. Sometimes to understand America, we have to reach outside of America and look at those foreign diplomats that influence our leaders, our policies. And Sir Winston Churchill is one of those that had a very lasting impact on America and its culture. Let's waste no time and dive into this week's episode of Winston Churchill. Winston Churchill was born the 30th of November, 1874, and he died January 24th, 1965. He was a British politician, army officer, and a writer. Twice served as Prime Minister of the United Kingdom, first time from 1940 to 1945, when he led Britain to victory in the Second World War. Then the second time from 1951 to 1955. Churchill represented five constituencies during his career as a member of Parliament. Ideologically, an economic liberal and imperialist. For most of his career, he was a member of the Conservative Party, which he led from 1940 to 1955. But from 1904 to 1924, was a member of the Liberal Party. Sir Winston Churchill was known as the Roaring Lion. There's an iconic portrait by Joseph Koresh taken at the Canadian Parliament December 1941 portraying this Roaring Lion iconic image of Mr. Churchill. His leadership positions included Leader of the Opposition in Office July 26, 1945 through October 26, 1951. 
He was the leader of the Conservative Party. In office, November 9, 1940, through April 6, 1955. His ministerial offices include Minister of Defense. He was in office October 28, 1951, through March 1, 1952. He served First Lord of the Admiralty. He was in office September 3, 1939 through May 11, 1940. He served as Chancellor of the Exquire November 6, 1924 through June 4, 1929. He served as Secretary of the State for the Colonies from February 13, 1921 to October 19, 1922. He served as Secretary of State of Air, served from January 10, 1919 to February 13, 1921. He served as Secretary of State of War. He was in office from January 10, 1919 to February 13, 1921. He was Minister of Munitions from July 17, 1917 to January 10, 1919. He was also Chancellor of the Duchy of Lancaster from May 25, 1915 to November 25, 1915. He was First Lord of the Admiralty from October 24, 1911, to May 25, 1915. He served as Secretary of State for the Home Department from February 19, 1910, to October 24, 1911. He was President of the Board of Trade from April 12, 1908, to February 14, 1910. His parliamentary offices. He was Member of Parliament for Woodford from July 5, 1945 to October 15, 1964. He was a Member of Parliament for Epping in office October 29th 1924 to July 5th, 1945. He was a member of Parliament for Dundee, April 24, 1908 to November 15, 1922. He was a member of Parliament of Oldham, October 24, 1900 to January 12, 1906. Winston Churchill's resting place is at St. Martin's Church, Balden. His political party was conservative, except for the little tout between 1904 and 1924. He was the liberal. He had five children. His parents, Lord Randolph Churchill, and Jenny Jerome, 
Interesting fact, Jenny Jerome was American. His mother was American. His father was British. His education included Harrow School, Royal Military College, and Sandhurst. His military service, his allegiance was to the United Kingdom. His branch of the service was British Army and Territorial Army. His years of service was 1893 to 1924. He commanded the 6th Battalion and the Royal Scots Fusiliers. The war battles and wars that he was in, Modhist War, Second Boer War, First World War, with all of Churchill's great accomplishments, he was widely considered one of the 20th century's most significant figures. Churchill remains popular in the UK and the Western world, where he is seen as a victorious wartime leader who played an important role in defending Europe's liberal democracy from the spread of fascism, also praised as a social reformer and writer. Among his many awards was the Nobel Prize in Literature. Conversely, his imperialist views and comments on race, as well as his sanctioning of human rights abuses in the suppression of anti-imperialist movements seeking independence from the British Empire have generated considerable controversy. Without a doubt, there's a lot of controversy that surrounds Sir Winston Churchill's legacy, but that still does not belittle the accomplishments this man achieved in his life, not only for himself, but his nation and the world. You can find a lot of audio out there on Sir Winston Churchill. For my podcast, I chose three particular audio segments that I want to share with you out of Sir Winston Churchill's life. The first piece of audio I want to share with you is Winston Churchill's iconic Never Surrender speech. Let's not waste time. Let's listen to Winston Churchill. When a week ago today, Mr. Speaker, I asked the House to fix this afternoon as the occasion for a statement, I feared it would be my hard lot to announce the greatest military disaster in our long history. I thought, and some good judges agreed with me, that perhaps 20 or 30,000 men might be re-embarked. But it certainly seemed that the whole of the French First Army and the whole of the British Expeditionary Force north of the Amiens-Abbeville Gap would be broken up in the open field or else would have to capitulate for lack of food and ammunition. These were the hard and heavy tidings for which I called upon the House and the nation to prepare themselves a week ago. 
the whole root and core and brain of the British Army on which and around which we were to build and are to build the great British armies in the later years of the war seemed about to perish upon the field or be led into an ignominious and starving captivity. The enemy attacked us on all sides with great strength and fierceness. And their main power, the power of their far more numerous air force, was thrown into the battle or else concentrated upon Dunkirk and the beaches. Pressing in upon the narrow exit, both from the east and from the west, the enemy began to fire with cannon upon the beaches by which alone the shipping could approach or depart. They sowed magnetic mines in the channels and seas. They sent repeated waves of hostile aircraft, sometimes more than a hundred strong in one formation, to cast their bombs upon the single pier that remained, and upon the sand dunes, on which the troops had their only shelter. Their U-boats, one of which was sunk, and their motor launches took the toll of the vast traffic which now began. For four or five days an intense struggle reigned. All their armored divisions, or what was left of them, together with great masses of infantry and artillery, hurled themselves in vain upon the ever-narrowing, ever-contracting appendix within which the British and French armies fought. Meanwhile, the Royal Navy, with the willing help of countless merchant seamen, strained every nerve to embark the British and Allied troops. 220 light warships, and 650 other vessels were engaged. They had to operate upon the difficult coast, and often in adverse weather, under an almost ceaseless hail of bombs and an increasing concentration of artillery fire. Nor were the seas, as I have said, themselves free from mines and torpedoes. It was in conditions such as these that our men carried on with little or no rest for days and nights on end, making trip after trip across the dangerous waters, bringing with them always men whom they had rescued. The numbers they have brought back are the measure of their devotion and their courage. The hospital ships which brought off many thousands of British and French wounded, being so plainly marked, were a special target for Nazi bombs but the men and women on board them never faltered in their duty. Meanwhile, the Royal Air Force, which had already been intervening in the battle, so far as its range would allow, you know, from our home bases, now used part of its main metropolitan fighter strength and struck at the German bombers and at the fighters, which in large numbers protected them. This struggle was protracted and fierce. Suddenly, the scene is cleared. The crash and thunder has for the moment, but only for the moment, died away. A miracle of deliverance achieved by valor, by perseverance, by perfect discipline, 
by faultless service, by resource, by skill, by unconquerable fidelity, it manifests to us all. The enemy was hurled back by the retreating British troops. They were so roughly handled that he did not carry their departure seriously. Sir, we must be very careful not to assign to this deliverance the attributes of a victory. Wars are not won by evacuations. But there was a victory inside this deliverance which should be noted. It was gained by the Air Force. Many of our soldiers coming back have not seen the Air Force at work. They saw only the bombers, which escaped its protective attack. They underrated its achievements. I've heard much talk of this. And that is why I go out of my way to say this. I will tell you about it. This was a great trial of strength between the British and German air forces. Can you conceive a greater objective for the Germans in the air than to make evacuation from these beaches impossible and to sink all these ships which were displayed almost to the extent of thousands? Could there have been an objective of greater military importance and significance for the whole purpose of the war of this? They tried hard and they were beaten back. They were frustrated in their task. We got the army away, and they have paid fourfold for any losses which they have inflicted. Sir, when we consider how much greater would be our advantage in defending the air above this island against an overseas attack, I must say that I find in these facts a sure basis upon which practical and reassuring thoughts may rest. I will pay my tribute to these Young Airmen, the great French army was very largely, for the time being, cast back and disturbed by the onrush of a few thousands of armored vehicles. May it not also be that the cause of civilization itself will be defended by the skill and devotion of a few thousand airmen? There never has been, I suppose, in all the world, in all the history of war, such an opportunity for use. The Knights of the Round Table, the Crusaders, all fall back into the past, not only distant, but prosaic. These young men going forth every morn to guard their native land and all that we stand for, holding in their hands these instruments of colossal and shattering power, of whom it may be said that every morn brought forth a noble chance, and every chance brought forth a noble night, deserve our gratitude, yes, to all the brave men, in so many ways and on so many occasions, are ready and continue ready to give life and all their native land. Nevertheless, our thankfulness at the escape of our army and so many men whose loved ones have passed through an agonizing week has not blind us to the fact 
But what happened in France and Belgium, it's a colossal military disaster. The French army has been weakened, the Belgian army has been lost, a large part of those fortified lines upon which so much faith had been reposed is gone. Many valuable mining districts and factories have passed into the enemy's possession. The whole of the channel ports are in his hands, with all the tragic consequences that follow from that. And we must expect another blow to be struck almost immediately at us or at France. We are told, sir, that Herr Hitler had a plan for invading the British Isles. This has often been thought of before. When Napoleon laid Boulogne for a year with his flat bottom boats and his grand army, he was told by someone, there are bitter weeds in England. There are certainly a great many more of them since the British Expeditionary Force returned. Sir, I have myself full confidence that if all do their duty, if nothing is neglected, and if the best arrangements are made, as they are being made, we shall prove ourselves once more able to defend our island home, to ride out the storm of war, and to outlive the menace of tyranny, if necessary for years, if necessary alone. At any rate, that is what we are going to try to do. That is the resolve of His Majesty's government, every man of them. That is the will of Parliament and the nation. The British Empire and the French Republic, linked together in their cause and in their need, will defend to the death their native soil, aiding each other like good comrades to the utmost of their strength. We shall go on to the end. We shall fight in France. We shall fight on the seas and oceans. We shall fight with growing confidence and growing strength in the air. We shall defend our island, whatever the cost may be. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. And if which I do not for a moment believe this island or a large part of it was subjugated and starving, then our empire beyond the seas, armed and guarded by the British fleet, would carry on the struggle until in God's good time the new world with all its power and might steps forth to the rescue and the liberation of the old That iconic piece of audio right there is a wonderful representation of archiving audio for posterity. It's great when we can set back and we can hear the words out of the individual's mouth. You could feel the tone. You could feel the visceral need of survival in that clip. This next piece of audio that I'd like to share with you is when Mr. Churchill comes over and he addresses Congress. Let's listen in. 
members of the Senate and of the House of Representatives of the United States, I feel greatly honored that you should have invited me to enter the United States Senate chamber and address the representatives of both branches of Congress. The fact that my American forebears have for so many generations played their part in the life of the United States, and that here I am, an Englishman, welcomed in your midst, makes this experience one of the most moving and thrilling in my life, which is already long and has not been entirely uneventful. I, I, wish, I wish indeed that my mother, whose memory I cherish across the veil of years, could have been here to see. By the way, uh, I cannot help reflecting that if my father had been American and my mother British, <coughs> instead of the other way around, I might have got here on my own. <laughs> like a fish out of water in a legislative assembly where English is spoken. I'm a child of the House of Commons. I was brought up in my father's house to believe in democracy. Trust the people. That was his message. I used to see him cheered at meetings and in the streets by crowds of working men way back in those aristocratic Victorian days when, as the Israeli said, the world was for the few and for the very few. Therefore, I have been in full harmony all my life with the tides which have flowed on both sides of the Atlantic against privilege and monopoly, and I have steered confidently towards the Gettysburg ideal of government of the people, by the people, for the people. I owe my advancement entirely to the House of Commons, whose servant I am. In my country, as in yours, public men are proud to be the servants of the state and would be ashamed to be its masters. On any day, if they thought, it, if they thought the people wanted it, the House of Commons could, by a simple vote, remove me from my office. But I'm not worrying about it at all. Uh, as a matter of fact, I am sure they will approve very highly of my journey here, for which I obtained the King's permission, in order to meet the President of the United States. <laughs> and to arrange with him for all that mapping out of our military plans 
and for all those intimate meetings of the high officers of the armed services in both countries which are indispensable to the successful prosecution of the war. I should like to say, first of all, how much I have been impressed and encouraged by the breadth of view and sense of proportion which I have found in all quarters over here to which I've had access. Anyone who did not understand the size and solidarity of the foundations of the United States might easily have expected to find an excited, disturbed, self-centered atmosphere with all minds fixed upon the novel, startling, and painful episodes of sudden war as they hit America. After all, the United States have been attacked and set upon by three most powerfully armed dictator states, the greatest military power in Europe, the greatest military power in Asia, Japan, Germany, and Italy have all declared and are making war upon you. And a quarrel is open which can only end in their overthrow or yours. But here in Washington, in these memorable days, I have found an Olympian fortitude which far from being based upon complacency is only the mask of an inflexible purpose and the proof of a sure, well-grounded confidence in the final outcome. <laughs> and their factions who have launched their peoples on the path of war and conquest know that they will be called to terrible account if they cannot beat down by force of arms the peoples they have assailed. They will stop at nothing. They have a vast accumulation of war weapons of all kinds. They have highly trained and disciplined armies, navies, and air services. They have plans and designs which have long been contrived and matured. They will stop at nothing that violence or treachery can suggest. It is quite true that on our side, our resources in manpower and materials are far greater than theirs. But only a portion of your resources are as yet mobilized and developed. And we both of us have much to learn in the cruel art of war. We have therefore without doubt a time of tribulation before us. In this same time some ground will be lost, which it will be hard and costly to regain. Many disappointments and unpleasant surprises await us. Many of them will afflict us before the full marshalling of our latent and total power can be accomplished. For the best part of 20 years, the youth of Britain and America have been taught that war was evil, which is true, and that it would never come again, which has been proved false. For the best part of 20 years, the youth of Germany, of Japan, and Italy 
have been taught that aggressive war is the noblest duty of the citizen and that it should begun, be begun as soon as the necessary weapons and organization have been made. We have performed the duties and tasks of peace. They have plotted and planned uh, for war. This uh, naturally has placed us in Britain and now places you in the United States at a disadvantage which only time, courage, and untiring exertion can correct. We have indeed to be thankful that so much time has been granted to us. If Germany had tried to invade the British Isles after the French collapse in June 1940, and if Japan had declared war on the British Empire and the United States at about the same date, no one can say what disasters and agonies might not have been our lot. But now, to total war efficiency has made very great progress. The broad flow of munitions in Great Britain has already begun. Immense strides have been made in the conversion of American industry to military purposes. And now that the United States is at war, it is possible for orders to be given every day, which in a year or 18 months, hence, will produce results in war power beyond anything that has been seen or foreseen. Uh, the Russian menace which hangs over Japan, it becomes still more difficult to reconcile Japanese action with prudence or even with sanity. What kind of a people do they think we are? Is it possible they do not realize that we shall never cease to persevere against them until they have been taught a lesson which they and the world will never forget? members of the Senate and members of the House of Representatives, I will turn <clears throat> for one moment more from the turmoil and convulsions of the present to the broader spaces of the future. Here we are, together, facing a group of mighty foes who seek our ruin. Here we are, together, defending all that to free men is dear. Twice in a single generation, the catastrophe of world war has fallen upon us. Twice in our lifetime has the long arm of fate reached out across the oceans to bring the United States into the forefront of the battle. If we had kept together after the last war, if we had taken common measures for our safety, this renewal of the curse need never have fallen upon us. Do we not owe it to ourselves, to our children, to tormented mankind, to make sure that these catastrophes do not engulf us for the third time? 
it has been proved that pestilences may break out in the old world, which carry their destructive ravages into the new world, from which, once they are afoot, the new world can not escape. Duty and prudence alike command. First, that the germ centers of hatred and revenge should be constantly and vigilantly served and treated in good time, and that all and that an adequate organization should be set up to make sure that the pestilence can be controlled at its earliest beginnings before it spreads and rages throughout the entire earth. Five or six years ago, it would have been easy, without shedding a drop of blood, for the United States and Great Britain to have insisted on the fulfillment of the disarmament clauses of the treaties which Germany signed after the Great War. And that also would have been the opportunity for assuring to the Germans those materials, those raw materials, which we declared in the Atlantic Charter should not be denied to any nation, victor or vanquished. The chance has passed. It is gone. Prodigious hammer strokes have been needed to bring us together today. If you will allow me to use other language, I will say that he must indeed have a, a blind soul who cannot see that some great purpose and design is being worked out here below, of which we have the honor to be the faithful servants. It is not given to us to peer into the mysteries of the future. Still I avow my hope and faith, sure and inviolate, that in the days to come, the British and American peoples will for their own safety and for the good of all walk together in majesty, in justice, and in peace. That piece of historical audio shows you the visceral need that Great Britain had for America and its resources to enter the world. You witnessed Winston Churchill reaching out to the new world to save the old. There's one last piece of historical audio coverage I would like to share with my audience today, and that is Winston Churchill's finest hour speech. It's a little bit longer, but I cleaned this audio up, so let's not waste any time and listen in to Winston Churchill. Ladies and gentlemen, the Prime Minister. The disastrous military events which have happened in France during the last fortnight have not come to me with any sense of surprise. Indeed, I told the House of Commons, as you may remember, uh, almost exactly a fortnight ago, that the worst possibilities were open. <coughs> 
And I made it perfectly clear that whatever happened in France would make no difference to the resolve of Britain and the British Empire to fight on. As I then said, if necessary for years, if necessary alone. During the last few days, we have successfully brought off the great majority of the troops we had on the lines of communication in France. And seven-eighths of all the troops we have sent to France since the beginning of the war, that is to say about 350,000 out of 400,000 men, are safely back in this country. Others are still fighting with the French. We have also brought back a great mass of stores, rifles and munitions of all kinds, which had been accumulated in France during the last nine months. We have therefore in this island today a very large and powerful military force. This force includes all our best trained <coughs> troops and our finest troops including scores of thousands of those who have already measured their quality against the Germans and found themselves at no disadvantage. We have under arms at the present time in this island over a quarter, over a million and a quarter men. Behind these, we have the local defense volunteers, numbering half a million, only a portion of whom, however, are yet armed with rifles or other firearms. We have incorporated into our defense forces every man for whom we have a weapon. We expect very large additions to our weapons in the near future. And in preparation for this, we intend forthwith to call up, drill, and train further large numbers. Those who are not called up or else are employed upon the vast business of munitions production in all its branches, and their ramifications are innumerable, those who are not so employed or required will serve the country best by remaining at their ordinary work until they receive their summons. We have also over here the Dominion Armies. The Canadians have actually landed in France, but have now been safely withdrawn. They were much uh, disappointed, but in perfect order with all their artillery and equipment. And both these very high-class forces from the Dominion will now take part in the defense of the mother country. Lest the account I have given of these large forces we have in this country should raise the question, why did they not intervene in the Battle of France? I must make it clear that apart from the division training and organizing at home, only 12 divisions were equipped to fight upon the scale which justified their being sent abroad. And this was fully up to the number which the French had been led to expect would be available at the ninth month of the war. The rest of our forces have a fighting value for home defense, which will, of course, steadily increase with every week that passes. 
Thus, the invasion of Great Britain would at this time require the transportation across the sea of hostile armies on a very large scale. And after they had been transported, they would have to be continually maintained with all the immense mass of munitions and supplies which are required for continuous battle. As continuous battle it will surely be. Now here is where we come to the Navy. And after all, we have a Navy. Some people are inclined to forget that we have a Navy. For more than 30 years, I've been concerned in discussions about the possibilities of overseas invasion. <coughs> and I took the responsibility on behalf, on behalf of the uh, Admiralty at the beginning of the last war of allowing all the regular troops to be sent out of the country. That was a very serious step to take because our territorials had only just been called up and were quite untrained. Therefore, this island was for several months practically denuded of fighting troops. The Admiralty of those days had confidence in their ability to prevent a mass invasion. And you must remember that at that time, the Germans had a magnificent battle fleet, a fleet in the proportion of ten ships of theirs to sixteen of ours and capable of fighting a general engagement any day. Whereas now they have only two heavy ships worth speaking of. The uh, Scharnhorst and the Neissenau. So the situation is very much less critical than the one we lived through in the beginning of the last war. And it seems to me that so far as seaborne invasion on a great scale is concerned, we are far more capable of meeting it today than we were at many periods in the last war, and during the early months of this war also, before our other troops were trained, and while the BEF had proceeded abroad. Now the Navy have never pretended to be able to prevent raids by bodies of five or ten thousand men flung suddenly across and thrown ashore at several points of the coast some dark night or foggy morning. The efficacy of sea power, and especially under modern conditions, depends upon the invading force being of a large size, so that the Navy have something they can find and meet, and as it were, something they can bite on. Now even five divisions, very likely equipped, would require 200 to 250 ships, and with the modern air reconnaissance and photography, it would not be easy to collect such an armada, marshal it, and conduct it across the sea without any powerful naval force to escort it, and there would be very great possibilities put it mildly, that this armada would be intercepted long before it reached the coast and all the men drowned in the sea, or at the worst, blown to pieces with their equipment while they were trying to land. We have also a great system of minefields, recently strongly reinforced, through which we alone know the channel. 
If the enemy tries to sweep passages through these minefields, it will be the task of the Navy to destroy the minesweepers and any other force employed to protect them. There ought to be no difficulty in this, owing to our great superiority at sea. The question is whether there are any new methods by which these solid assurances can be circumvented. Odd as it may seem, some attention has been given to this by the Admiral, whose prime duty and responsibility it is to destroy any large seaborne expedition before it reaches, or at the moment it reaches, these shores. Uh, it wouldn't be a good thing for me uh, to go into details of this. I might uh, put something in their minds which they haven't thought of, and perhaps they wouldn't uh, make any answer which would put something in our minds that we haven't thought of. All I will say is that untiring vigilance and untiring searching of the mind is being and must be devoted to the subject. Because remember, the enemy is crafty, cunning, and full of novel treacheries and stratagems. There is no dirty trick he will not do. Uh, this brings me to the great question of invasion from the air. <coughs> and of the impending struggle between the British and German air forces. It, it seems quite clear that no invasion on a scale beyond the capacity of our land forces to crush speedily, no invasion on a scale beyond that is likely to take place until our air force has been definitely overpowered. In the meantime, there may be raids by parachute troops and attempted descents by airborne soldiers. We ought to be able to give these gentry a warm reception, both in the air and also if they reach the ground in any condition to continue the discussion. But the great question is, can we break Hitler's air weapons? Now, of course, it is a very great pity that we have not got an air force at least equal to that of the most powerful enemy within reach of our shores. We were promised that five years ago. But we have a very powerful air force which has proved itself far superior in quality, both in men and in many types of machines, to anything we have met so far in the numerous and fierce air battles which have been fought with the Germans. Uh, in France, where we were at a considerable disadvantage and lost a lot of machines on the ground when they were standing round the aerodromes, in France we were accustomed to inflict in the air a loss of two to two and a half to one. In the fighting over Dunkirk, which was a sort of no-man's land, we undoubtedly beat the German Air Force and gained the mastery of the local air, inflicting here a loss of three or four to one, day after day. Anyone who looked at the photographs, you must remember them, of the re-embarkation about ten days ago, great photographs in all the papers, showing the masses of troops assembled upon the beaches, forming the ideal target for hours at a time, 
anyone who looked at them must realize that this could not have been uh, possible. That the uh, re-embarkation of all these men could never have been achieved unless the enemy had resigned all hope of recovering air superiority at that time and at that place. <clears throat> In the defense of this island, the advantages to the defenders will be much greater than they were in the fighting around Dunkirk. We hope to improve upon the rate of three or four to one, which was realized to Dunkirk, <coughs> and in addition, all injured machines and their crews which get down safely, of which there are a great many in air fighting, surprisingly, quite a large number, come to ground without being permanently injured, and quite a large number of the men are come to ground safely. If they fall on friendly soil, they live to fight another day. Whereas all the injured enemy machines and uh, all the men who man them will be uh, total losses so far as the war is concerned. During the great battle in France, we gave very powerful continuous aid to the French army both by fighters and by bombers. But in spite of every kind of pressure, we would never allow the entire metropolitan strength of the Air Force in fighters to be consumed. This decision was painful, but it was also right, because the fortunes of the battle in France could not have been decisively influenced, even if we had thrown in our entire air fighter force. That great battle was lost by the unfortunate strategic opening, by the extraordinary unforeseen power of the armored column, and by the very great German preponderance in numbers. Our fighter air force might easily have been exhausted as a mere incident in that conflict. And then we should have found ourselves at the present time in a serious plight indeed. As it is, I am happy to inform you that our fighter air strength is stronger at the present time relatively to the Germans, who have suffered terrible losses, than it has ever been. And that consequently we believe ourselves possessed of the capacity to continue the war in the air under better conditions than we have ever experienced before. I look forward confidently to the exploits of our fighter pilots, these splendid men, this brilliant youth, who will have the glory of saving their native land, their island home, and all they love from the most deadly of all attacks. There remains, of course, the danger of the bombing attacks, which will certainly be made very soon upon us by the numerous bomber forces of the enemy. It is quite true that their bomber force is superior in numbers to ours. But we have a very large bomber force also, which we shall use to strike at military targets in Germany without intermission. I do not at all underrate the severity of the ordeal which lies before us, 
but I believe our countrymen will show themselves capable of standing up to it and of carrying on in spite of it, at least as well as any other people in the world. Much will depend on this, and every man and woman will have the chance to show the finest qualities of their race and to render the highest service to their cause. For all of us, whatever our sphere or station, it will be a help to think of the famous line, he nothing common did or mean upon that memorable scene. I have thought it right on this occasion to give you some indication of the solid practical ground upon which we base our inflexible resolve to continue the war. There are a good many people who say, never mind, win or lose. Think or swim, better die than submit to tyranny. And such a tyranny. And I do not dissociate myself from them. But I can assure you that our professional advisors of the three services, very able men, unitedly advise us that we should carry on the war, that we are able to carry on the war, and that there are good and reasonable hopes of final victory. We have fully informed and consulted all the self-governing dominions, these great communities far beyond the ocean who have been built up on our laws and on our civilization and who uh, are absolutely free to choose their course but are absolutely devoted to the ancient motherland and who feel themselves inspired by the same emotions which lead us to stake our all upon duty and honor. We have fully consulted them, and I have received from their Prime Ministers, Mr. Mackenzie King of Canada, Mr. Menzies of Australia, and Mr. Fraser of New Zealand, and uh, the great General Smuts, of South Africa, that wonderful man, with his immense, profound mind, and his eye watching from the distance the whole panorama of European affairs, I received from all these eminent men, who all have governments behind them elected on wide franchises, who are all there because they represent the will of their people, I've received from them messages couched in the most moving terms, in which they endorse cordially our decision to fight on, and they declare themselves ready to share our fortune and to persevere to the end. That is what we are going to do. We may now ask ourselves, in what way has our position worsened since the beginning of the war? It has been worsened by the fact that the Germans have conquered a large part of the coastline of Western Europe, and many small countries have been overrun by them. 
This aggravates the possibilities. This aggravates the possibilities of air attack and adds to our naval preoccupation. It in no way diminishes, but on the contrary, definitely increases the power of our long-distance blockade. Similarly, the entrance of Italy into the war increases the power of our, of our long-distance blockade. Uh, we stop the worst leak of all by that. We do not know whether military resistance will come to an end in France or not, but should it do so, then, of course, the Germans will be able to concentrate their forces, uh, both military and later on industrial, upon us. But for the reasons I've given you a little earlier in these remarks, they will not find it easy to apply their military forces to this island in great strength. If invasion has become more imminent, as no doubt it has, we, being relieved from the task of maintaining a large army in France, have far stronger and more efficient forces here to meet it. If Hitler can bring under his despotic control the industries of the countries he's conquered, this will add greatly to his already vast armament output. On the other hand, he will not be able to develop them immediately. And we are now assured of immense, continuous, increasing support in supplies and munitions of all kinds from the United States, and especially of aeroplanes and pilots from the Dominions and across the ocean, who will come from regions outside the reach of the enemy bombers. I do not see how any of the new factors, the new adverse factors I have mentioned, can operate to our detriment on the balance before the winter comes. And the winter will impose a strain upon the Nazi regime, with almost all Europe writhing and starving under its cruel heel, which for all their ruthlessness, will run them very hard. We must not forget that from the moment that we declared war on September the 3rd, and you heard that first air raid warning within a few minutes of the declaration of war, we must not forget that it was always possible for Germany to turn all our air force upon this country, together with any other devices of invasion and darn tricks and stratagems she had in mind. And uh, France could do little or nothing to prevent her doing so. We have therefore lived under this danger all these months. In the meanwhile, however, we've enormously improved our methods of defense, and we have learned what we had no right to claim at the beginning, namely that the individual Air aircraft and the individual British pilot has a assured and definite superiority. Therefore, in casting up this dread balance sheet and contemplating our dangers with a disillusioned eye, I see great reason for intense exertion and vigilance.
but none whatever for panic or despair. During the last four years, now during the, I should say, during the first four years of the last war, 1914 to 1918, the Allies experienced nothing but disaster and disappointment. That was our constant fear. One blow after another. And terrible losses. And frightful dangers. Everything miscarried. And yet, at the end of those four years, the morale of the Allies was higher than that of the Germans, who had moved from one aggressive triumph to another, and who stood everywhere triumphant invaders of the lands into which they had broken. During that war, we repeatedly asked ourselves this question. How are we going to win? And I do not remember that anyone was ever able to answer it with much precision, until at the end, quite suddenly and unexpectedly, our terrible foe collapsed before us, and we were so gorged and glutted with victory that in our folly we threw it all away. We do not know yet what will happen in France, or whether the French resistance will be prolonged, both in France and in the French Empire overseas, or whether it will only be prolonged in the French Empire overseas. The French government will be throwing away great opportunities and casting adrift their future if they do not continue the war in accordance with their treaty obligations from which we have not felt able to release them. I dare say you saw in the newspapers this morning the historic declaration in which, at the desire of many Frenchmen and of our own hearts, we have proclaimed our willingness at this darkest hour in French history to conclude a union of common citizenship in this struggle. However matters may go in France, or with the French government, or other French governments, we in this island and in the British Empire will never lose our sense of comradeship with the French people if we are now called upon to endure what they have been suffering we shall emulate their courage and if final victory rewards our toils they shall share the gain I more freedom shall be restored to all we abate nothing of our just demands not one jot or tittle do we receive. Czechs, Poles, Norwegians, Dutch, and Belgians have joined the causes with our own. All these shall be restored. What General Vagan has called the Battle of France is over. The Battle of Britain is about to begin. Upon this battle depends the survival of Christian civilization. Upon it depends our own British life 
and the long continuity of our institutions and our empire. The whole fury and might of the enemy must very soon be turned on us. Hitler knows that he will have to break us in this island or lose the war. If we can stand up to him, all Europe may be freed and the life of the world may move forward into broad, sunlit uplands. But if we fail, then the whole world, including the United States, including all that we have known and cared for, will sink into the abyss of a new dark age, made more sinister and perhaps more protracted by the lights of perverted science. Let us therefore brace ourselves to our duty. So bear ourselves that if the British Empire and its commonwealth last for a thousand years, men will still say, this was their finest hour. As you can see, Winston Churchill was a very complex man. He was very accomplished. And he changed the world with his vision and with his resolve. Without Winston Churchill, who knows what the world may be like right now. And that's going to wrap up this episode of Dead America. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please share, like, and subscribe. Also, I'd like to invite you over to our other podcast, Free Circle Freedoms, on Anchor. Until next week, I'm your host of Dead America, Ed Waters, out.